A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yudi Geber with another episode. And here we are. It's um, just a few days before Yom Kippur. And um, 76 years ago today, um, a very, very incredible event in American Jewish history took place with the rabbi's march on Washington. So it happened three days before Yom Kippur. The English date was a little different than this year. It was October 6th, 1943. And I want to talk a little bit about what the march was all about. The march itself, which is enough of a story, was um, an amazing event of 400 or over 400. It's hard to know the exact number. Um almost exclusively Orthodox rabbis marched on Washington to the Capitol, to the White House, Lincoln Memorial, to the whole uh, tour of Washington. And um, it was a protest in the context of World War II and the Holocaust that the United States government should do more for Jewish refugees. Most of these rabbis were um, not just Orthodox, but actually Eastern European Long beards, long coats, the sight, even today would be quite impressive. In 1943, it was absolutely unheard of for Orthodox rabbis of that type to make such a public event. So the event itself um, was uh, pretty much unprecedented in U.S. In US history and, um, and uh, caused a big media sensation. Um, the reception, or rather the lack of reception that they received by the United States government, especially the White House, at this event, also was a major story, which we'll speak about hopefully shortly. And and uh, they daven, they prayed, they said a special prayer for the war and for the Jewish people and for the president, a very uh, special ceremony. And of course, there was a petition to allow more Jewish refugees to be able to come into America. The very strict immigration quotas was pretty much the catalyst of the entire march. And um, it was a major event. And of course, the details, which if we get a chance, 
I'll go into a little bit. And and the whole thing surrounding this march was a a, a very major event in, in every sense of the word. There's no way to minimize it. What I want to focus on for the most of this episode, however, is not the march itself, which will keep on cropping up in the middle, but rather the context of how and why and when and what was going on the surrounding events of the of the march. Uh, it's October 6, 1943, as I mentioned, so it's pretty deep into the war. What's going on in the war at that time? What's America's role? Um, America's role in the war, of course, starts in uh, following Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. So now the United States military is fighting the Axis um, on all fronts, both in the Far East and in Europe. October 43, they're obviously um, in North Africa ready. They're getting ready for an invasion of Europe. It doesn't happen until the next year, but quite a bit of time later, in June 1944. And they are trying to win the war against a very uh, powerful enemy, both in Germany and Japan. And uh, therefore, their primary goal is to win the war and rescue and immigration and refugees are not high on their agenda. We'll see soon other reasons why it wasn't high on their agenda. The American Jewish community at the time is the largest Jewish community in the world, even before the war. Uh, Poland came in as a close second, but, um, but in 1939, when, uh, when we have accurate statistics, so the American Jewish community is the largest in the world. It's over 4 million Jews in America and a very large, diverse, and here they have, they have, they're, they're in America during the war, and they hear about what's going on in Europe to their brethren, the Jewish, the Jews of Europe under Nazi occupation, and then there's different positions that are taken on rescue, um, various different positions, and they range from um, a very ambivalent attitude of, you know, very little solidarity of the Jewish people. You have to understand how um, that certain things that are taken for granted of Jewish solidarity are not always taken for granted. And amongst the Jewish people, there were voices that said, well, the Jews in Europe, um, they're, you know, we have to uh, do everything we can, but you know, it's 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 not it's not it's not really relevant to us. So that definitely was a position a position of ambivalence, especially taken in the context of what the U.S. government's position was. Um, the most uh, Jews in the United States looked at Roosevelt as some sort of god almost, and in general, um, the United States government, the ones who had taken them in as immigrants for their parents and grandparents and given them opportunity. And most of them were sworn Democrats and New Dealers, and uh, therefore the U.S. government can do no wrong. So rescue was not very high on the agenda for large segments of the American Jewish population. But there was rescue amongst very large, perhaps the majority of the American Jewish population, there was a large amount of rescue done. Uh, the Joint Distribution Committee of course, was the largest uh, philanthropic organization uh, in the, in America, in the world. 
providing um, the Jews of Poland in the ghettos with packages until the until America joined the war, until the Pearl Harbor. It's a whole story in itself. The Joint's role in the in the rescue effort. There's rescues among rescue efforts that take place amongst the American Jewish Bund, which was connected very closely to the Polish Bund. And there's a lot of information that was being funneled from these Jewish socialists in Warsaw and in other places in Poland to the Polish government in exile and also to the American Jewish socialists, uh, officially Bundist, Yiddishists, and all those. There's a there's the American Jewish Congress. There's the American Jewish Zionist organization that's affiliated with a lot of the Zionist groups back in Nazi-occupied Europe. There's a marginal uh, Zionist group affiliated with uh, Jabotinsky and his revisionist Zionists that's headed by a fellow named Hillel Cook, whose father was the younger brother of Rav Cook. He's a nephew of Rav Cook. He was born in, in Lita, in Lithuania, and he moved to Israel at a young age, and he came to America in the late 1930s, right at the beginning of the war, pretty much. And um, he was very active, very militant, very public. And as a revisionist Zionist, he was very, very, um, very, very controversial to a certain extent with his activities. He was very public. He took very um, provocative moves, both in his... um, his stunts that he did to a certain extent and the ads that he would take out in the New York Times and other big newspapers, very, very um, public moves that most of the American Jewish establishment was uncomfortable with. He changes his name to protect his family's identity, to not to bring shame to the Cook name. He had also left religion at this point, and he changed his name to Peter Bergson. And the Bergson group, in in a publicity sense, they do the most for rescue. They are completely public about it. They don't care about any public opinion. They don't care about being politically correct. And they definitely could not care less what the American Jewish establishment thought of them. And they went totally public, very provocative, very in-your-face kind of activities. And they're definitely the most active in a publicity sense. In a practical sense, they did not have that many connections in diplomatic circles, and their activities were pretty much restricted to publicity. Um, taking out newspaper ads, like I said, they had some Hollywood connections. The great screenwriter Ben Hecht was a uh, revisionist Zionist, and he wrote um, a kind of like a, a publicity type of a movie for them. And the Bergson group was very involved in rescue. There's an Orthodox group involved in rescue. It was an umbrella Orthodox organization called the Vad Hatzalah. Officially, it was part of the Agudas Harabanim, which was the great, uh, the largest rabbinical organization, the rabbis, uh, the rabbinical organization of uh, the United States and Canada, which was uh, very large and powerful at the time, mainly made up of immigrant rabbis, but there were some American rabbis on it as well. It was an Orthodox organization headed by Reblazer Silver, and the Yavadat Sola officially was the rescue arm of the Agudas Rabbanim, but it attempted to be an umbrella organization that included within it other Orthodox groups, such as 
the OU, the Orthodox Union, the Agudas Yisrael, the Mizrahi, um, and others, many, many, many others, actually. There's a very large umbrella uh, group, and almost all Orthodox uh, organizations in America were represented within the Vat Hatzalah at some point uh, or another. And they're very much involved in rescue. They're created to rescue rabbis and yeshiva students in 1939. Incredible, interestingly enough, and again, the story of the Vat Salah is something we really should devote uh, not just one episode to, but a series of episodes to, because it's, first of all, an amazing organization. It's a great story to be told, but it's also quite a misunderstood uh, organization, what their activities were, what their goals were. And the goals were in the beginning, in 1939, when it's founded, is to save rabbis and yeshiva students from... Soviet uh, territory. It wasn't about Nazi territory, and it wasn't about the Jewish people as a whole. It was very different than something like the Joint, which was to, you know, to send food packages to starving Jews in the ghettos. The Varatzel was never about that. It was about saving rabbis and yeshiva students in Soviet-occupied territory in the Vilna area in eastern Poland, and uh, they continued to be primarily involved in that pretty deep into the war. Once the final solution becomes known, so so they expand their operations. And in fact, the Rabbi's March, which was organized both by the Bergson Group, which they, they initiated the idea of making it as a publicity stunt, and the Vat Atzala went along with it in a very um, sincere and powerful fashion that if we would have rabbis come together and daven together, and go to Washington together. Perhaps they can uh, make this uh, make make public public policy in the United States government change. Um, so it's a joint operation. This rabbis march between the Varatzala and the Bergson Group. And keep in mind the date. It's October 1943. So it's deep into the final solution. By now, the Varatzala just about then. It was actually right around this time. In late 1943, the Vatatzala makes an official change in their policy. They're not about saving rabbis and yeshiva students or sending uh, just about that. Of course, they continue to do that, sending care packages to yeshiva guys uh, deep in the Soviet Union, in the gulags, or in Shanghai, where the Mir Yeshiva and other yeshiva students were. They decide to expand their operations and move into full-scale rescue of the Jewish people, irrespective of who they were, their religious or political affiliation. And it's not just about rescuing them from uh, Soviets or, or other things, but it's actually to, to deal with the final solution. That's really what's going on now, which brings us to the next point. And this is a major point in the context of the rabbis' march, is where is the final solution holding at this point? And what do the Western allies or residents of the Western countries know about the final solution in October 1943? So the Nazis begin to perpetrate mass murder of the Jews, as is known in June 1941, when they invade the Soviet Union. The final solution is decided upon sometime at the end of 1941. We don't know till today exactly the date when. And we know that in the beginning of 1942, they start to carry out the final solution against the Jewish people in Europe um, in mass. They build the gas chambers and the, and the uh, death camps, and they start to carry it out. And throughout 1942, news of the final solution starts to reach the West through different channels. The, um, 
the Bund and the Ringelblum Archive in Warsaw send uh, messages through the Polish underground to the Polish government in exile. In December 1942, the Polish government in exile in London holds a press conference uh, with the BBC and everyone announcing that Polish Jewry is being exterminated. Um, Soviet Jews in Nazi-occupied Soviet Union are being exterminated. And, um, and, and it becomes completely public at that point. There was other cables uh, that had reached through Swedish diplomats, through Switzerland also, a combination of factors throughout the year of 1942, when the final solution takes place, predominantly 1942 and early 1943. And uh, the West begins to find out, once the Polish government in exile announced it publicly, and took uh, took it as official responsibility of their Polish citizens, so then the British and American governments had to take it more seriously. So so the so they, they know about it. By the end of 1942, everyone knows about it, and they pretty much understand the extent of it, for sure by the beginning of 1943. And now the question is, what are they going to do about it? So there's this ambivalence on the United States government's part. They don't have a big interest in... In, uh, in, uh, in helping, by the way, without getting into it, because it's also a topic in itself, they don't really have the capability of helping uh, that much, but they could relax the immigration uh, quotas, which wouldn't really help that much, because most Jews, especially in Poland and Eastern Europe, wouldn't be able to immigrate at that point, and they're pretty much dead at this point also. And that's why I keep on emphasizing the date of this Rabbi's March. March By October 1943, again, it's three days before Yom Kippur, right? Uh, a week later, October 14th, 1943, the first day of Sukkot, is the Sobibor Revolt, the breakout of Sobibor. The last of the three death camps is dismantled in Sobibor a week later. Of course, no one knew that that, that was going to happen a week later. A month later was Aktion Enternfest, Operation Harvest Festival, when the Nazis shoot 42,000 Jews in the Lublin area, the last, basically the last Jews of central Poland who are still alive. The final solution is, is for the most part, over in, in October 1943. Um, unfortunately, it was already successful. Probably, uh, probably between 80 and 90 percent of the of the Jews who would eventually be killed uh, by the Nazis um, in the six million that they killed were already gone by October 1943. That's what's so tragic about the rabbis' march is that it uh, is that it came at such a late uh, point because uh, until information got to the United States, until people took it seriously, and until that there was a call to action. Keep in mind that the rabbis' march. What's one of the other reasons that makes it so unique? is that it is the only public protest, the only public march about rescue of Nazi victims during the entire years of the war in the United States. A bunch of Orthodox rabbis are the only ones throughout the entire years of the war who protested publicly on the topic of rescue. That's a, another incredible thing. And, and there's, that's, that's, that's the extent of it. Now, the Hungarian Jewry, who eventually is unfortunately exterminated in the later stage of the war, in the summer of 1944, October 1943, they're safe. No one anticipates that in March, the coming March of 1944, that the Nazis are going to invade Hungary. So, as, so in, in the context of October 1943, 
there's almost no, unfortunately, there's almost no Jews left to save. Uh, almost all the Jews were uh, already exterminated, and Hungarian Jewry at that time was safe. Of course, no one was going to know, and no one could anticipate what the events were. So the rabbis who want to save whatever's left, and of course, this is what they could do. They agreed to go on this march, and Roosevelt doesn't come out to greet them. They come, a huge delegation with a petition. They even had uh, American Jewish war veterans, representatives escorting them. And they come to the White First, they go to the Capitol. And there's footage of this, by the way. You could see it online. And um, pictures, it's all documented. And several representatives of Congress, senators, representatives come out. Um, Senator William Barber, who was one of the most sympathetic to the march and pushed uh, through, tried to push legislation through the Senate afterwards as a result of the march, one of the tangible results of the march. Um, so he, they, they, they come to the White House and uh, they're met by the presidential secretary, Marvin McIntyre, McIntyre. And he says, oh, the president is busy, which he was not. He was not busy. He snuck out a back door to some sort of army ceremony. He was not interested in meeting the rabbis, not just because uh, Roosevelt had no interest in meeting rabbis, which he definitely did not, but also because he was advised by two close Jewish advisors of his, the undisputed leader of American Jewry at the time, Stephen Wise, who was the great reform rabbi, and a personal advisor who happened to be Jewish, Samuel Rosenman, who's a judge to Roosevelt. Both of them advised him not to meet these rabbis. They were scared of public opinion. They were scared that such a public display of Jewishness, Jewishness especially by Orthodox Jews and very Orthodox-looking Jews, would raise anti-Semitism in the United States and making it a Jewish cause. They wanted to support the U.S. government, support the U.S. war effort, and not only that, but they were ashamed of these Orthodox-looking Jews. And Samuel Rosenman tells the president, you don't want to meet these Jews. They don't represent what the Jew American Jewish community really is. They're a relic of Eastern Europe. This is not the true representatives of the American Jewish community. And based on that advice, Roosevelt does not meet with the delegation. And, um, and, and uh, he thought he could get away easy with that, but uh, it hit the press. And there was this one headline was a very cold welcome uh, that they receive at the White House. Another headline was, would a similar delegation of 500 Catholic priests Catholic priests have been thus treated. Um, there were some pretty big rabbis who were part of this delegation. Um, Rabbi Lazar Silver, Rabbi Ram Kalmanovich, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, Rabbi Matcha Friedman, the Biana Rebbe, Rabbi, Rabbi Solveitchik. Um, there was others, um, recent immigrant rabbis, uh, Rabbi Tali Karlbach, later the, fa the father of Shlomo Karlbach, there was many, many very, very prominent rabbis. And of course, um, I'm, I'm just uh, giving a few examples from the list. There's many, many, um, Rabbi Swell Rosenberg and others. And, uh, and of course, I'm going to get a lot of responses about who I didn't name off, but I know that there's a lot more and uh, many prominent ones. And they're kind of spurned by the president. They get a very cold reception by Henry Wallace, the vice president. But that's, uh, that's pretty much it. So there's this opposition to the march within the American Jewish community who are ashamed, who feel that this is not the right way to do it, who feel that they should be more supportive of U.S. policy. 
There's the initiative to the march, which comes from Peter Bergson, who's always looking for more ways to make the rescue agenda uh, public and on the front page of the newspapers. And then there's the um, agreement of the Vat Hatzala, who recognizes that the final solution has been decimating European Jewry and expands their operations to be all-inclusive, to, to have an all-inclusive rescue agenda. And they decide at this stage of the final solution that at least they can do right before Yom Kippur with special prayers. Um, and they mention the fact that it's right before the Day of Atonement, the Jewish Day of Yom Kippur. That's part of their petition. That's part of their statement. And they have a Kelmole. They say Kaddish. And they say a special prayer for the troops overseas. It's a very moving ceremony, also at the Lincoln Memorial. And um, what were the results? So you have, for many years they felt that there wasn't any serious results. Today we know that there was results, because the several of representatives of Congress who did meet with them were moved by uh, the, the march, and they put through legislation through Congress to create some sort of refugee board, some sort of, uh, um, you know, relaxing the immigration quotas for refugees. And eventually there's pressure within the executive branch itself. There is a, there's a dispute between the State Department, excuse me, and the Treasury Department, which had a, an assimilated Jew, Henry Morgenthau Jr., as the Secretary of the Treasury. And um, when there was a committee, a government committee set up on the refugees, and the Undersecretary of State, Breckenridge Long, who testified and it was found, and the Treasury was able to prove that he lied or misled or hid information in his testimony or you know, changed around things in his testimony that created a big scandal in the State Department, that the State Department is deliberately blocking refugees from coming in, and with all this pressure from the the, the uh, Treasury Department and from Congress, advisors to the president said, it'll look bad for you in an election year if Congress helps the refugees and you don't. So either Congress is going to go ahead and do it, or you got to take the initiative and set up with an executive order, uh, which he did a few months later, the War Refugee Board which ultimately was a very instrumental in saving Jewish lives in the last months of the war, especially in Budapest. A lot of the funding that Roll Wallenberg and other people who were saving Jews in Budapest in the last months of the war came from the War Refugee Board. They were funding it and arranging it. They probably were instrumental in stopping the deportations of Hungarian Jewry also at that time, which is uh, also the activities of the War Refugee Board is a great story in itself. Very little and very late, but it was something. So the Rabbi's March will go down in history as a unique event in itself, and all the context and the story that went into creating it, as well as the results of it. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources. And of course, tours and trips to all these places to hear about our past, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. You can follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.